Thank you, and aloha, everyone. Aloha. My, oh my, I can't believe I'm up here. <laughs> you are a lot of people, but a lot of beautiful people. I'd like to introduce myself to you in the manner that I did the first time I ever talked to a group of people in, in Honolulu. And I thought I was very calm, cool, and collected. And when they handed me the microphone, I very calmly said, Good morning, everyone. My name is Alanon, and I'm a member of Marlene. <laughs> and I hate to say I'm not too much more calm, cool, and collected today than I was then. Um, I'd like to tell you how I met my alcoholic husband, whom I'll call Joe, because that happens to be his name. We met at a charity dance in a very swanky hotel on the north side of Chicago some 16 years ago. And it was a charity dance called Santa Claus Anonymous. I think my higher power was trying to tell me something then. <laughs> I attended this dance with my girlfriends, and Joe attended with his boyfriends. And on the way to this dance, I recall one of my girlfriends saying, gee, I really hope you meet this guy named Joe. He's a bachelor. He's a professional man. He has three offices, lots of money, you know, the whole bit. And I thought, oh, you know, he sounds like a dream. And uh, I went into the dance, and Joe was standing across the dance floor and happened to see me come in. He didn't know who I was, but this was verified at a much later date through the friends that he was with that he attended this dance. And said, see that girl coming in the room over there with the black dress on and the leopard skin trim? That was the style then. <laughs> I don't see much leopard skin around anymore these days. <laughs> but uh, he, said, he said, I swear to you that someday, I don't know this girl, but someday I'm going to marry her. And uh, like I say, this was verified at a much later date to me. And uh, that night at this dance, Joe did get to know me. In fact, he more or less swept me off of my feet. He asked me out for the next four nights in a row following that dance. And uh, he, at the time that we were dating initially, he told me that he was an alcoholic, but that he didn't drink, that he was cured. He'd just come out of a rehabilitation institute. And uh, I didn't know what an alcoholic was. And at that time, he didn't really know either because he said that he thought that he was cured. We all know that. And so I figured, well, you know, he's got a drinking problem. Maybe he drinks once in a while. I know lots of friends, lots of my own relatives uh, drink a lot, including my father. So I didn't think too much of it, and we dated quite regularly for almost a year before we decided to set our wedding date. Well, we set our date for December 28, 1963. We planned a beautiful wedding. 400 people were invited to this wedding. And uh, I had a dress all picked out, the whole, you know, all the plans we made. The night before the wedding, I was over visiting Joe's mother. We were making some last-minute plans. And Joe came home, had combined booze with pills, and really went crazy. The house went up for grabs. We went up for grabs. Furniture all over. A very bad scene, uh, of the result of which made me choose to cancel my wedding the next morning. It was a little bit late to tell anybody that there wasn't going to be a wedding. <laughs> so my dear brother, who was in from Minnesota to attend the wedding, had to stand out in front of the church that morning and inform all the guests as they arrived that there wasn't going to be a wedding that morning. He also told them that we would return all of the wedding presents, but that seeing that the dinner was paid for that evening, 
everybody was welcome to attend the dinner. Well, <laughs> I don't need to tell you how I felt about the whole situation. I was quite fearful of Joe with this uh, outburst of violence. And uh, that evening, my family decided it was best that I go in hiding in case he was looking for me. They all, of course, planned to attend uh, my dinner. So <laughs> oh, they wanted to have a good time. <laughs> so they decided they were going to put me up at my sister's house. She lived in a very old attic apartment on the north side of Chicago that at that time happened to be rat infested. The exterminators were due to come in that week. And they thought Joe would never look for me there because I knew how deathly afraid I was to visit my sister. And so they put me up there. They bought me a hamburger and french fries from a nearby restaurant, sat me on the couch, gave me my nephew's baseball bat so I could hit any rats on the head in case they came into the room. And they went off to my dinner. Well, I sat there, and I can tell you, I didn't eat very much of that hamburger. I was one very sad little lady on my wedding night, crying my heart out, and knowing, of course, that everybody was at my reception and I wasn't there. <coughs> to make matters worse, Joe showed up at the reception, drunk. <laughs> he was wondering why nobody was at the church. <laughs> he thought, you know, what's happening here in his stupor? <laughs> and he, he approached the front door of the reception, and my father happened to be there at the bar, and he saw Joe come in, and he just swung him right around and marched him outside. <laughs> he says, you're not having anything to do with this dinner. And uh, he explained it, you know, to Joe. Joe hadn't really known what had happened. And, of course, he went home. The next day, he was very, very remorseful when everything realized or dawned on him what had really happened. So he asked for his mother to intercede and for his mother to talk to me. So his mother visited me the next day, and she said, Joe is so sorry for what has happened. He just cannot believe that, you know, this all took place. And he would like you to reconsider and perhaps marry him anyway. And she added... He promises never to drink again. And we all know a promise is a promise. And, of course, I believe this. And I said, well, just so long as he never, ever takes another drink, I'll consider marrying him. So four days later, we still had our, our wedding license was valid and, and the whole bid. We still had our plans made for our honeymoon. We decided that we would get married by the justice of the peace. No big church wedding or anything like that. We, we did it very quietly. And uh, off we went on our honeymoon. Our honeymoon was planned for the Virgin Islands at the Virgin Isle Hilton Hotel, which is a very nice hotel. Uh, sad to say, the very first night, Joe started drinking. He was going to go out and bring me back a surprise. This was about 8 o'clock the first night. <laughs> Pretty soon midnight came, one in the morning, no, Joe, where is my surprise? You know. <laughs> one thirty, two o'clock, no, Joe, no surprise. I was panicky, and I called downstairs at the main desk, and I said, have you happened to see my husband? They knew we were honeymooners because we had the honeymoon suite. Above all things, I was so embarrassed, no husband. <laughs> and so they said, well, Mrs. Day, we're very sorry, but we don't know where he's at, but if we see him, we'll be sure and call the room and let you know. I didn't get any call. I couldn't sleep. I was worried. I didn't know what was happening. I was very confused and frightened. Pretty soon, Joe comes in at 3.30 in the morning, just bombed out of his mind. 
And I said, where have you been? I've been so worried. He says, oh, he says, I met a bunch of really nice guys down the road, and we had a race, and I won. And I said, a race? And he says, yeah, in, in the car. You know, we were riding up and down these cliffs and these mountainous roads and everything. <laughs> and to top it all off there, you drive on the wrong side of the road. It's European style. And you drive on the opposite side of the road. And he said, I won. And he, they gave me this trophy. And he showed me this silver bird with wings and stuff, you know. <laughs> and I said, gee, you know, I, I'm surprised you didn't kill yourself in your condition. And he said, no, he was very happy that he won this race. And everybody liked him and made friends with him and so on. Well, as it turned out, the next day we, we got up and were ready to tour the island in our rented car, and we went down to the parking lot. It turns out the trophy that he won was the hood ornament off of our car. <laughs> that was the big trophy. <laughs> well, needless to say, a few more things happened on our honeymoon, which I won't go into now. <laughs> it was quite disastrous. We returned from our honeymoon and decided to settle in a nice little suburb of Chicago called Oak Park, Illinois. This is a dry town, much to my delight, because I thought, aha, living in a dry town, there's no chance for Joe to have any booze, never knowing that an alcoholic is smart enough to go two blocks away, buy his booze, and bring it back home. <laughs> he was very clever, and he did do that. In fact, when we were first married, I thought the bluebird of happiness really had moved into our home except I didn't know that the bluebird flew the coop before he even moved in. <laughs> I was very shocked at some of the things that happened that first year of our marriage. I, in fact, I, I thought I was going insane. I threatened to go to a psychiatrist or to go to Al-Anon. Joe found out about Al-Anon when he went to this rehabilitation drying out place. And all he did was mention the word briefly to me, I recall. I'm not even sure that's where I heard, from it, heard about Alan on the first time around. But I threatened him with it. And I said, I'm going insane. I either have to go to Alan or go to a psychiatrist. He said, well, you better go to a psychiatrist because I don't want you to go to Alan. All they do there is talk about their husbands. And he said, being a professional man, he's an, he's an eye doctor and optometrist. He said, all my patients will probably be around and hear about me and, you know, business will be bad and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So <clears throat> I didn't go to Alan, needless to say. In fact, it was a good number of years after that that I even brought up the subject again. Joe struggled very hard with his drinking the first few years of our marriage. He knew he was an alcoholic, but he didn't know about the disease of alcoholism, and he didn't know how to cope with it or handle it. He went off many times to drying out places, each time coming out and assuming and thinking that he was cured. And I thought he was cured, too. And he tried AA. He was in and out of AA. We even had some small AA groups at our home. And uh, he would always resort back to drinking again. Neither one of us understood why. I tried to hide the fact that I was married to an alcoholic from my family and my friends. I went out of my way to do this to the point where once I recall we were having a family reunion and it was an afternoon affair and I could tell that morning that Joe was already too far gone to the point where I knew that I would be embarrassed to continue the plans of going to this family reunion. So what I did was deliberately go in the kitchen and cook a quarter pound of bacon and pour the boiling bacon grease over my hands so that I would have a legitimate reason 
why I shouldn't attend this family reunion. Another time, I recall, I was working as a secretary for the Chicago Transit Authority in the Merchandise Mart, which is one of the largest office buildings in Chicago. And in the afternoon, I got a phone call from the police department saying that Joe had been arrested for drunken driving and that I should go down and bail him out. <coughs> Naturally, a dutiful wife is going to run down and bail him out, right? So what I did, though, was to go into my boss and tell my boss that I forgot to tell him that morning that I accidentally broke a tooth the night before on a cherry pit and that I had to go to the dentist as an emergency. I think my boss probably understood why, because he was one of the people that was invited to my wedding. <laughs> Didn't say anything, though. <laughs> Fortunately, that day at work, I had a wig on. And uh, I was delighted because I figured nobody would, you know, recognize me. So I put on my sunglasses and put my coat on, went downstairs, and waited in line for a taxi to take me to the police station to bail out Joe. I waited in line, and generally in front of the merchandise mart, there's about at least 15 to 20 people always waiting for taxis there. And so there I stood, just cringing, because I knew that every single one of the other people in line knew exactly where I was going, what Joe had done, what I was going to do, and the whole bit. And the same thing happened when I got in the taxi. I knew that the taxi driver also knew exactly where I was going. In fact, when I got in the taxi, I said, I want the corner of Halston and Addison Street. He said, oh, do you want the police station? I said, I do not. I said, I want the opposite corner from the police station. <laughs> and to prove it, when I got out of the taxi, I stood on the corner a full five minutes until the taxi was completely out of view so that in case he looked in the rearview mirror, he would know that I didn't cross the street and go into the police station. And I did go into the police station with my, my coat and my collar up and my wig and my sunglasses on and everything. And I think the police probably thought I was there to turn myself in for something because I looked more criminal than anyone else. <laughs> but uh, those were some of the things that I did to try and cover up the fact that I married an alcohol, an alcoholic. We decided to take the geographical cure and move to Hawaii. Nobody in Hawaii has a drinking problem, we thought. We thought this was the place to go. We would have no problems, everything would be solved, and we could start our life anew. We went to Hawaii without any jobs. We didn't have any house to move into, no plans whatsoever. All we knew was we wanted to get out of Chicago. It was a depressing city, and it reminded us of a lot of bad times. So we got in the car. We had a bird, a minor bird, that we took with us. We drove cross-country and boarded the Lurling with a few appliances and a few pieces of furniture, the other things we put in storage. And we moved over to Hawaii. When we got to Hawaii, neither one of us worked for a while. We wanted to, you know, play tourist and get used to the islands and know our way around and, and this sort of thing. And uh, Joe wasn't drinking. In fact, just prior to our moving, he, he almost died of an overdose of, of pills. I found him on the floor one day, and this was what really climaxed our decision to, to move to Hawaii. He was a very sick person when we arrived. I think he, he weighed less than 100 pounds, very thin, although he's a, a short, small man. At any rate, we moved to Hawaii, and after nine months, we got jobs. Joe decided not to go back into his field and got involved in the field of insurance passed some examinations, took some tests, and uh, found some friends in the field and 
was off at it with the uh, insurance. Joe started drinking soon after we were there, within the first year. At this time, he was more or less a periodic. He could go for several months without drinking and then all of a sudden drink again, not knowing why. He would try an AA meeting very, very occasionally and, and didn't do that on any great regular basis. One of my greatest problems was my fear, my fear and the way I projected things. I always feared the worst. I always feared that, that Joe was going to behave badly or get violent or something like that, never knowing for sure what really was going to happen. He was basically a home drinker. He didn't go out too much to drink, but when he did go out, I would sit and worry a lot, and I mean a lot. I know a lot of you know what some of these fears and worries can do to you. In fact, I used to try and do everything in my power to prevent him from going out and taking the car. I'd hide the car keys. All over, I'd hide the car keys. Sometimes I'd even try and take him out of his hand if I knew he was going out. And then he got smart. He went out one day and got about ten sets of car keys made and buried them all around the house and the yard and the bushes and everything. <laughs> and I soon found out if an alcoholic wants to go out and get a drink, they are going to do it. <laughs> There's no way you're going to stop them. <laughs> But I would sit at the window waiting for Joe to come home, and I would sit and I would worry. I'd worry myself sick. As soon as I'd hear the car pull in the driveway, I'd run off to bed and pretend I was asleep. It didn't do me very much good to, uh, to do this, of course, because he didn't know that I was sitting in the window all this time. Sometimes I would sit in the window, and uh, if a neighbor would walk by and glance my direction, I'd quickly duck out of the way because I didn't want them to see me in the window crying. Other times, though, when neighbors would look and I'd stand there looking right at them so that they would see me and know how badly I felt. And they'd say, oh, that poor thing, look at her, you know, <laughs> get a little sympathy. I would also project to the point of having almost a complete three-act play all played out in my mind as to what was going to happen when Joe did come home. He would come in the front door, beat me up bloody. I would die, I'd wind up on the floor in a pool of blood, and he would stand over my body with the back of his hand to his forehead and say, she was such a good wife. <laughs> I reached the point where my fears really got the best of me, almost to the point of insanity, and I always felt that I was never able to stay in the house with Joe, that he was going to become violent. So what I would do is plan various escape routes to get away from him. And I would be in bed, Joe would come home, and I'd figure, uh-oh, he's drinking, I've got to get out of here because I'm not going to live through the night. So we happened to live on the water in Hawaii, on a marina part, which is, I don't know, seawall and then water. We didn't live on the beach, in other words. So what I would do when i go to bed at night is I'd put my bra on under my nightgown and I'd put my car keys in my bra only because I was never able to buy a nightgown with pockets. You can't find them. Not even pajamas with pockets, at least then. I, I looked all over. But I used to sleep with my car keys in my bra. And then when I felt it was safe, I'd go out the side door, and I'd go down to the seawall, and I'd climb from my property to the neighbor's property. And in order to do this, at the certain point where the properties join, I would literally have to hang by my fingertips and crawl around the wall and hope that I wouldn't fall in the water before I reached the other side. And I would go through this, then I'd get to the neighbor's property, run up their property, around to the front of my house, get in my car, and take off. 
Joe wouldn't even know I was gone. <laughs> he would be passed out in the living room most of the time. But what I would do then is drive to desolated or deserted parking areas. I recall one time I went into the shopping center parking lot and I took a very dark corner. I figured nobody would bother me there. I had my pillow and my blanket with me and stopped the car and parked it all set, laid down in the front seat. And all of a sudden I heard a tap on my window. scared the daylights out of me. And it turned out to be the security guard. He said, lady, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you know, if you don't mind, I thought I might get a little sleep. And he started laughing hysterically. He says, you're kidding. He said, did you, did you have a fight with your husband? And I said, yes. He says, oh, oh, oh. you know, he said, generally, it's the husband that wind up sleeping here. <laughs> I was so embarrassed I could have cried. And so uh, he said, well, I tell you what. He said, don't worry about a thing. You just, you know, lie down, take your sleep, and I'll make sure that nobody bothers you. I thought, oh, isn't he nice? So I laid down. And the whole rest of the night, every half an hour, I could hear his footsteps coming up to the car. He'd shine the flashlight in to make sure that I was okay, walk away, boom, 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 you know. <laughs> every half an hour, I woke up. Never got a heck of a lot of sleep doing that. So I thought, well, I've got to try something else next time. So next time, I thought, I know, I'll take my dogs along for protection. I have a couple Doberman Pinschers. It's a little bit hard to sleep with your car keys in your bra, plus two dog leashes. <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> Wrap them around my front, tuck in the ends, you know, the whole bit. <laughs> but I wanted protection. It was a little bit frightening out there at night. <laughs> so I would do the same thing, go along the seawall, go up front. This time, though, I had to sneak up the side of the house and get the dogs out so that Joe wouldn't know, of course, all very quietly. And, and I have... Uh, the kind of dogs that are watchdogs. So I would have to bring lots of treats with me. You know, all, all the staging and the planning, you know, I went through so much. Got the dogs out, put them in the car, and then I would go to construction sites, nice desolated construction sites. And I'd park the car there and get my pillow and my blanket out and get comfy, cozy, accepting. I don't know how many of you know how difficult it is to sleep with dogs in the back seat when there's rats and cats and mongoose and everything else running around and these dogs are racing back and forth panting and huffing like horses <laughs> the whole night long and again I didn't get a very much sleep so I tried a third route a third way of, of escaping from Joe and this was just plain to go to a hotel room so I started going to hotel rooms and because I didn't have the money and Joe was spending quite a bit I felt that I couldn't afford a decent hotel, so I would go to these little uh, cheap hotels in Waikiki that had no TV, nothing. You know, I, I, I think I was playing the martyr bit a little bit <laughs> between you and me. <laughs> but uh, I would go to these hotels, and I would check in. In fact, once I checked in with my nightgown at the blouse and in a pair of slacks, and I can't imagine what they thought of me. Always I would check in. No luggage. Couldn't tell them how long I was going to stay. You know, the bellboys would take me up, you know, if the hotel had enough uh, class to have a bellboy. I tried different ones each time. I didn't want Joe to ever know where I was staying. And so I would sit in the hotel room feeling so sorry for myself and figuring, here's Joe in our comfortable home, you know, sleeping in a nice bed, watching TV, and here is me, the non-alcoholic, you know, in the sleazy, you know, $5 a night hotel room. Can't tell you how horrible I felt. <laughs> I controlled Joe like crazy, or at least I thought I was controlling him. I tried everything in the books to, to make him stop drinking. 
I would treat him like a like a child, and then I'd yell at him. I'd say, "Why do you act like a two-year-old?" You know. <laughs> Finally, I I hit rock bottom, and I felt that <clears throat> I should go get some help, and I went to Alanon. I found Alanon in the newspaper, and I made that first desperate telephone call, and I was told by the gal that answered the phone that I should go to the Makiki meeting, which is my home group today. And uh, I planned to go. It was on a Monday night. Fortunately, I never threw away that wig because I put the same wig on and the same sunglasses <laughs> that I used once before. And I went to the meeting, 8 o'clock at night with sunglasses on. I can't imagine what they thought of me, but uh, there I was. <laughs> I went in and everybody was happy and smiling, and I thought one of two things. Either I was in the wrong room or else... These people didn't suffer from the problems that I had. They couldn't, they couldn't be married to alcoholics like Joe and, and know what I was going through because they were smiling. I really thought I was in the wrong place. It took me a long time to work the Al-Anon program. I attended meetings for seven months, I can honestly say, and learned very, very little. What I did was go to meetings, and then I would talk Joe into going to meetings. Sometimes he would go to an AA meeting that was two blocks from our Al-Anon meeting, and he would drop me off and then go on to his meeting, or so I thought. After questioning him sometimes after my meeting, though, I would find out that, you know, I got the thought in my mind, I don't think he's going to the AA meetings. I think he's driving around and doing other things and then picking me up later. So I found a way to check up on this, and... Uh, when he would drop me off at my meeting, I would lean over and kiss him goodbye and look at the speedometer on the car and find out what the mileage was. <laughs> then when he'd pick me up later on, <laughs> kiss him hello and look at the mileage, uh-huh, he drove 30 miles. The meeting's only two blocks away. <laughs> so I had one up on him there, and I could accuse him quite easily of not, not attending the AA meetings. I went to a lot of AA meetings myself in those days. I still do today, but not as many then. And uh, the meetings that I did go to, uh, I found out much later, uh, my motive wasn't exactly the best in the world. I'd get all dressed up, go out to the living room to say goodbye to Joe that I was going to an AA meeting, have my hand on the doorknob, just hoping that he'd say, oh, wait, I'll go with you. <laughs> Never happened. <laughs> I went to a lot of AA meetings that I didn't really plan to do, really plan to go to by myself. I learned some things at the AA meetings. Uh, I learned a lot of good things. I learned about HALT, H-A-L-T. The alcoholic shouldn't get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, or too tired. So that was my main goal in life, to make sure that Joe never got too hungry, too angry, too lonely, or too tired. And he had food like crazy. I stuffed candy bars in his pockets whenever he was going out. I did everything to avoid those arguments, sometimes uh, silently, sometimes verbally. I, I did everything. I just didn't want to do him anger. I was pacifying him, you know, whatever he wanted. Beautiful. The loneliness, I had people over all the time. I was calling them, you know, please come over and visit us, you know. <laughs> didn't want him to get too lonely. You know, have the TV on, you know, I was encouraging him to take up hobbies, you know, whatever it, it took so that he wouldn't be lonely. What the heck is the tea? <laughs> yeah, tired, that's right. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> the tired thing was something else. I always wanted him to get enough sleep. 
And I would wake up in the middle of the night, and he, he, was, he always had a tendency to watch the late, late movies on TV. And I'd get out of bed, walk through the house, go out to the living room, and I'd say, do you know what time it is? You know, like he doesn't know what time. We've got three clocks in that room, and I have to come out of there and say, do you know what time it is? It's three o'clock in the morning. You're only going to get four hours sleep tonight. I was constantly badgering him over not getting enough sleep because I figured if he didn't, you know, AA says, you know, the alcoholic shouldn't get too tired. Uh, he'll start drinking again. He'll start drinking again. Some of these things I did uh, quite regularly. It took a lot for me to to work the program. It took a crisis, actually. We planned a trip. This was another one of Joe's surprises. He always had surprises for me, and I always, even today, dread surprises because they always turned out disastrous. <laughs> he planned a surprise trip to the Orient for me, and uh, I was all excited to go. And there's something about traveling and drinking. Every time Joe took a trip, he'd always wind up drinking. And we got on the plane, and sure enough, he started drinking. And we had this fantastic itinerary plan to go to all these countries in the Orient. And uh, we got in Hong Kong, stayed at a nice hotel, and the drinking really got bad. And I, of course, started with my fears and my projections, and I figured I was never going to make it out of that hotel alive. So I went down, and I checked out of my room and asked the hotel to give me another room, two floors underneath Joe. So they did. They didn't know why. I guess they probably wondered what I was doing. And so then I would go in and out of the hotel by the fire escape because I didn't want to run into Joe on the elevators. <laughs> Finally, it came time to change countries, and we were at the airport. Joe was, of course, uh, still drinking and decided that uh, he wasn't through drinking in, in Hong Kong. And uh, I decided I'd had enough of that. And I thought, gee, what have I learned in Al-Anon? You know, I thought, you know, I need some help here. What am I going to do? So all I could remember was the Al-Anon slogan, Mind your own business. And you're all, you all know that slogan, right? Mind your own business? It was M-Y-O-B, and that's why I remembered it, because I was so used to B-Y-O-B, bring your own bottle. And M-Y-O-B was mind your own business. And I thought that was an Al-Anon slogan at any rate, and that's what I clung to. And I thought, well, I'll just have to leave him here and go on. My flight was due out pretty soon. So I left him in Hong Kong. But I was very, very frightened because I didn't know what was going to happen to Joe. I didn't know whether he was going to drink and die or get hit by a car or wind up in a hospital or what have you. And this was when I realized that Al-Anon is worldwide. And I picked up the phone and I called Al-Anon asking for help. I really wanted advice, but they don't give advice, I found out. But I wanted the assurance that I had done the right thing because I was feeling very, very guilty over leaving Joe. And the al were so helpful. I never did get to a meeting over there, but I did make phone contact regularly with them. And they assured me that there wasn't anything I could do for Joe at that time, that apparently, you know, Joe had to continue his drinking and go about his thing and that I should go about mine. So I felt a little bit uh, comforted there. In fact... After I returned to Honolulu from that trip, the Al-Anon still contacted me by telegram and telephone, letting me know that Joe was okay. Actually, Joe stayed on that trip a little bit longer than I did, like three weeks. And when he came home, he came home for four days and made the announcement to me that he had to go back to the Orient to find his bottom. And I said, find your bottom in the Orient. He just spent $25,000 on that other six-week trip that he was on just blew it completely. We, had, we didn't have that kind of money, let me tell you. 
And uh, I said, well, can't you find your bottom on the outer island? <laughs> I didn't want him to go through another few thousand, you know. <laughs> but no way. He had to find his bottom. He knew his bottom was in the Orient, specifically Tokyo. <laughs> he knew that this is where his bottom was. So off he went. I, and again, I didn't know where he was going. Anything. He told me later that he didn't even realize he'd made that decision. He got on the plane and woke up, and he asked the stewardess where he was going, and she said, you're bound for Tokyo, and he says, fine, give me a bottle of scotch. <laughs> but uh, that's his story, and I, and I won't tell, tell you his story. It, uh, <clears throat> One of the things that I learned in Al-Anon, I had a good sponsor, by the way, and she really took me in hand, and she told me that I would have to work the 12 steps. I hadn't really given any thought at all to the 12 steps. I knew that they were there. I had been attending meetings, and I heard some of the step meetings, but it all went in one ear and out the other. And finally she said, Marlene, you better start working these steps. So I said, okay. So I went home, and I worked all 12 steps the first night. I know some of you have done this. And I said, I, said, I called her up, and I said, well, I did the 12 steps. Now what do I do? She said, Marlene, I think you better, you know, put a little bit more thought and concentration into these steps. And she talked to me for quite a while about what the steps mean and what they can do for you and so on and so forth. And I said, what an order. I can't go through with it. (laughs) (laughs) But I'd like to share with you some of my first impressions of the 12 steps because I didn't know. I didn't know the 12 steps at all. I thought I did at one time. The first step, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. It was very easy for me to admit my powerlessness. It was very easy for me to admit that I needed help to stop Joe from drinking. (laughs) That was easy for me. In my life, that was unmanageable. I thought I was doing all the right things. I thought that I should protect him. I thought that I should cover up for for the drinking. I thought that I should make the excuses. All the don'ts that we learn when we first come to Al-Anon came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I thought everyone did the things that I did. I didn't know about being insane or anything like that. In fact, I thought the Al-Anons had a lot of nerve telling me that I was insane. I thought that they all did things like spending at least three or four hours a day keeping charts like I did. We had a liquor cabinet consisting of 27 bottles in our, in our liquor cabinet at home. And I spent time every day measuring the levels of booze in each bottle on my little chart system. And so that Joe wouldn't know that I was doing this, I took very sharp needles and I would make fine hairline marks on the label so that I would know exactly which bottles were being drunk out of and which ones were being left alone. And the ones that were being drunk out of, then I would add water to so that he wouldn't get as drunk. And then when he would drink them, he wouldn't want me to know that he was drinking out of the bottle, so he would add water to them. (laughs) Half the time, I think he was only getting about 2% booze. (laughs) (laughs) My other chart system was a series of X's and O's and little shorthand notes that I'd make on the calendar so that I could instantly on any given day know exactly whether Joe was drunk or half drunk or sober or half sober. Then at the end of the month I'd tally all this up and I'd dangle it in front of his face and I'd say, see you were drunk 17 days this month and you were partly drunk for, you know, the whole thing. I'm sure he was interested. (laughs) Made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. 
First the Alanas tell me I'm insane, then they tell me I have to make a major decision that's going to affect my whole life. And I thought, boy, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. Later on, the step became to be one of my favorite steps. My higher power I had trouble with. I made deals with my higher power. I used to tell him sitting in front of those windows waiting for him to come home. I'd say, if you bring home Joe not drinking, I'll say three extra prayers tonight. God was really lucky. <laughs> I was really good to him. <laughs> letting go and letting God is a slogan that I always attach with the third step. And for me, I think uh, it works best if I visualize it mentally. And I have a little story that I'd like to share with you that uh, helps me work the slogan, let go and let God. And what I do is I visualize a mailbox and myself mailing a letter. And if I mail the letter in the mailbox, of course I have every assurance that the letter is going to reach the person that I mail it to. And uh, it's much the same case in letting go of your problems in Al-Anon or AA for that matter. If we imagine that the mailbox is God's mailbox and the letters are our problems, and when we take our problems to God's mailbox, we have to completely let go or God won't get our problem. If we take our hand out of the mailbox and we still have our hand even on a corner of that letter or that problem, we're going to have that problem with us. So we have to completely let go, 100% let go of our problem. And I know I'm one that always hangs on to a little corner now and then, and I always suffer for it, too. But uh, if I think of that story, it, it helps me quite a bit. The fourth step made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. When I first heard talk of the fourth step in Al-Anon, I thought, gee, you know, I came into this program perfect. I had no character defects. But I wanted to be accepted by these Al-Anon people, and I thought in order to be accepted by them, I better go home and make up some character defects. <laughs> so that's what I did. I went home and I made myself a list. <laughs> Found out, of course, a long time later that my list was a little bit uh, truthful. <laughs> I thought I was pretending. I, I thought, gee, the courage that these Alanons had talking about their, their character defects in front of everybody. The fifth step, admitted to God, to herself, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. This one I really dread, and I hear so many people always dreading this, you know, like, who do you take the, the fifth step with? The admitting to myself and the admitting to God, you know, that's easy. You know, I could uh, sort of cop out there. But uh, admitting to another person, I thought, uh, I've got to find somebody that is making plans to leave this island, somebody that's moving to the mainland. <laughs> Luckily, I searched long enough to realize that I didn't have to do that. I found out uh, through a counselor that I had been seeing that, that she was a good one to take my fifth step with. And fortunately, I, I stuck it out, and, and I took it with her and uh, was very happy that I, that I did so. The sixth and seventh step were ready to have God remove all these defects of character and humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Um, I was ready, definitely ready, to have God remove all of Joe's defects of character. Today, of course, I, I must say I, I depend on my higher power to help me out you know, in these areas. The eighth step made a list of all persons I had hired and became willing to make amends to them all. My first list consisted of people like me, Marlene, myself, I, you know, I had a long list, <laughs> all quite self-centered. Today, through the help of Al-Anon, Al-Anon has made my list grow, honestly grow, to my spouse, and my family, my friends, the people that I work with. 
I did harm them. I just wish I'd known sooner so that I could have corrected some of the mistakes I made. One person in particular that I harmed was my father, who died of alcoholism a few years ago, and uh, I didn't really know that he was an alcoholic. I realized today there's so much that I could have done, maybe not to uh, take care of his alcoholism, but at least I could have let him know that today, through Al-Anon, I understand what he's going through and maybe could have helped some of my other family members. But it was a little bit late for that. So sometimes we can't always make amends. Uh, I was a cop-out artist when it came to making amends in the ninth step. I would always say, no matter what amends I wanted to make to anybody, it's going to injure them. I'd find some reason why it was going to hurt them. <laughs> Sometimes I would try desperately, and I'd find just one little thread, you know, to hang on to so that I wouldn't have to, you know, make those amends. Today, again, through the help of Al-Anon, I can make these amends, and I can do it easily and more comfortably. Occasionally, I'll try and cap out, but it's a program of awareness, and the awareness helps me. It helps me today, and my sponsor can also get on top of things and help me out in this area. The tenth step continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I at first thought, how can you continue something that never was there to begin with? You know, if I had no character defects, how can I continue to admit them? Again, it was a cop-out. Today, through the help of al I can say, I'm sorry, or I did that, or I apologize. It's much easier for me to do these things with the help of the program. The eleventh step sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understood and praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. This, too, is one of my favorite steps. I was one that always wanted my will to be done. And one night when I was in Alana not too long, we had what we call birthday night where we read the pages out of our one day of the time book for our birthdays. And uh, I want you all to know that my birthday is June 4th. You can all send me a card. <laughs> but the June 4th page of the One Day at a Time book uh, is all about thy will be done, not my will be done. And I had the opportunity to read that page many times over the years, and uh, it's made a big impression on me because today I sincerely pray always that it's thy will be done, not my will be done, because it was his will that got me here today, certainly not my will, I know that. The 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I don't know where I would be today if there weren't people back when I started my first Al-Anon meetings, if they weren't there doing their 12th step. It was very encouraging to me to have these people there. And I have a feeling today that most anybody, if they practice the 12 steps with any amount of willingness and honesty and open-mindedness, they're bound, almost guaranteed, to have some sort of a spiritual awakening. Mine was quite gradual. I didn't have any thunder or lightning or anything like that. But I did have a spiritual awakening. And I think working the 12 steps and living the program, I think we all, in some way or another, have a spiritual awakening. I will go into the ending of my story. Some stories have happy endings and some stories have sad endings. Fortunately, mine is a happy ending. Today, Joe is sober. He's been sober for a number of years. In fact, he's an alcoholism counselor for an alcohol rehabilitation center in Hawaii. 
today. I'm busy being delegate to the state of Hawaii. I have a very good job today. I couldn't ask for a better employer. And uh, this leads me to bring up gratitude because gratitude is, is one of the, the most important things, I think, in the program. If we have nothing to be grateful for, then we have a lot more to learn. I have a lot to be grateful for. I'm grateful to be here today. I'm grateful for the program. Alan has given me my higher power back, the love of my spouse, my friends. It's given me so much. And I just want to thank you all for asking me here today and to thank you very much. And in Hawaiian, we say mahalo nui loa. Thank you. y'all going <laughs> do, do you want to take a little break I feel okay first I got a couple of messages I got to say this you know, uh, Charlie said while we're sitting up here it doesn't matter what part of the program you're on man we all feel the same and we're all crazy aren't we God love it <laughs> I, thank God alcoholism is contagious because we've got a lot of neat Alanons. I'm finding that out. Um, I have two urgent messages here. Ernie Cope, uh, and I have the number you're to call up here. Uh, Floyd Andrews, and I have the number you're to call up here. Okay? I've heard several times, you've heard us talk about the Young People's Conference. We took a um, trip to um, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. It was the 21st, 21st? 21st Annual Young People of AA Conference. We had an absolutely marvelous time. I'm 38 and Arthur's 51, okay? And we weren't sure we were going to qualify. And when we went up to the desk and said, what is young people? They said 102 on down. So we knew we were there. And, and Marie said the other night, it took me a long time to get young enough to be here. You know? And that was what I felt there. It was an absolutely marvelous uh, Conference. Uh, the theme was Love Will Keep Us Together, which I think is the theme that's been here this weekend. At that conference, the uh, speaker at the banquet we found out was a gal from Tucson. That was neat, right? Uh,